it requires a really large dollop of social science, what we know about how people uh, interact, work, influence each other, and can, in fact, screw things up. Welcome to BMC's Digital Outliers, a podcast series where some of our industry's brightest minds examine the many ways digital technology is transforming the modern workplace and how companies can find the right blueprint to successfully become digital powerhouses. In this episode, host Brian Solis, best-selling author and principal analyst at the Altimeter Group, speaks with Stowe Boyd, futurist and editor-in-chief at Work Futures, about why the days of the traditional CIO may be numbered, particularly with digital technology becoming so commonplace in the roles of virtually every work professional. Boyd also points out that while companies may start the digital transformation process from a purely technological or management perspective, Ultimately, they must broaden that process to incorporate modern lessons in human cognition, performance, and social interaction if they're to win the transformation battle. Hello, everybody. I am thrilled to bring today's conversation uh, to you with a very special guest. Uh, actually, not only a, a very special guest, but a dear, a dear friend. Oh, the stories we could share. Please help me welcome Stowe Boyd, Chief Researcher at GigaOM. Welcome, Stowe. Well, I'm not going to even try to live up to that, but thank you, Brian. <laughs> so so before, we, before we jump in, what are you working on these days? Well, I am actually about to take some vacation time, long overdue, and uh, write a book. So that's one thing. Um, obviously, it's an outgrowth of the kinds of ideas I've been pursuing both at GigaOM and my passion project, which is WorkFutures.io, which has a bunch of contributors now after 10 or 11 months of activity up on Medium. So that's that's been a great project, and um, it's given me new resolve to actually write a book for the first time. If you could focus on one thing on that book, uh, with all of the research you've done on the future of work and all the conversations we've had around it, what what would that principal premise be? that a tremendously large proportion of the thinking that we have about work, the nature of the relationship of the individual to work groups, uh, the individual to organizations, the nature of organizations' relationship with the people that make up the company, the nature of competition, a long list of uh, topics. Um, The problem is the great majority of our thinking about it is at the very best out of date and at the worst, is you know stultifyingly bad relative to what we know about human cognition, human motivation, and the nature of the economy we're living in. In your work and your research, what is it that gets an organization to actually see what the future of work means from a human level? How how do you how do you get that perspective injected into the organization? Well, I think the first thing is to uh, address those topics that people believe are top of mind and not to denigrate them by saying, you know, like I just did sort of you know, against my, my own recommendation, you know, just characterizing them as small bore is not going to get people in, into a receptive mindset to think at a, a larger scale. So it's perfectly fine to start with discussions about things like flex work or um, you know, whether or not Slack is or is not an answer to some set of questions that a company is confronted with. So it's fine to start there and to dig into those, those topics. But when doing so, it's still helpful 
to approach them from something other than just a simple technological or you know managerial kind of orientation and to start to uh, you know enlarge the discourse to include things like human motivations and and uh, and and what we know about how social groups uh, perform better or worse based on uh, you know the constraints that you put on them so for example you know I've been involved in a lot of writing about Slack. And I recently wrote something in which I examined the notion of what I'm calling social crowding. One of the problems that has arisen in the use of Slack is a mechanism that is really very potent and, and, and beneficial for small groups uh, who are working closely together, what I call sets, people, starts to be overloaded when a bunch of people start to intrude into those uh, channels in Slack terms. And uh, sort of as tourists clouding up your, your uh, crowding up your uh, local neighborhood bistro so you can't sit down and get lunch uh, because there's too many tourists in there. So examining that based on what we know about how small groups interact and work together and the notion of trust as a, a, a necessary aspect of effective small group work means that you can then discuss Slack's utility in uh, an organization from a grounding based in social science, not just opinions. Means that you can then discuss Slack's utility in uh, an organization from a grounding based in social science, not just opinions. And, and I think that is one of the sort of, that is an ex instance of the general case that I'm making, which is we really need to approach the discussion of these things, not about whether or not you like a user experience or whether or not you had a good uh, experience at some company using some tool once upon a time, but to actually look at it based on what we know about the actual efficient uh, and productive uh, interactions in small groups, for example. The general theme around most of these conversations was that technology should not be the first discussion point in any digital transformation strategy, yet it often is, right? IT tends to think about these things as tools, solutions, and architecture, and how do we how do we modernize the workforce? But what you're talking about is is a conversation that is is rare indeed, and that is how do people want to work? Uh, you have you have behaviors changing in in markets, which is driving you know companies transformation around customer experience. You have employees, which I think is an underestimated uh, priority these days in terms of how employees want to work simply because of their motivation, their behaviors, their expectations, even what they don't even realize until they find something they don't enjoy. And these are these are conversations that I have to uh, have to start with, well, <laughs> can you can you recognize and appreciate that people are different than how, let's say, how you grew up uh, working? And to sort of break through that, you have to, I guess, disarm cognitive or validation bias in a lot of HR and IT and managerial mindsets. And how do you how do you do that? Well, I think the first thing is to start talking about it. So it's you know relative to one of the threads you brought up, it's it's okay to actually say let's talk about digital transformation in its own terms, which is sort of an industrial approach to ideas that are of the sort that you and I are talking about right now, which is the, 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 the discourse around the future of work or new ways of work. And they are similar and they overlap, but they have different uh, sort of sets of values behind them, right? And, and so it's, it's okay to actually examine those 
as long as you do it in a non-critical way where you know you're discussing the premises and goals of these systems of thought if you will um, and then you can in, engage people but you also have to you know create a new context which is generally absent uh, and this is you know what my primary thesis is and that 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 thing that is absent is actual science about how people tick and how people are effective and what it takes for for example to get people to change their minds or to agree to uh, significant changes in the work context and so on. Um, and so it's not enough to resort to a kind of, uh, you know, set of dictates that this is how we think people should you know, react to changes or um, how people should adopt new technologies. It's more important to get people involved in a discussion about what we have actually learned in the past couple of decades about uh, you know cognition and social interaction. So for example, it, it's baffling to me as one example, even the people that are involved in building tools that build social networks, you know, most people start without any actual grounding in how what we know about social networks. You know, I mean from an anthropological viewpoint, not the web-based implementation of modern quote unquote social networks. So it's having to get to the point where people are willing to take a step back and reflect on some of these things. And then, for example, figuring out how to get people to talk about their biases and understand that even once you've accepted the fact that you have certain cognitive biases, just being aware of that isn't enough to counter them. You actually have to change the way people undertake certain activities in a business with the intention of countering the impacts of those biases. So, you know, being well-meaning or, or, you know, conscious about things, even in that case, it's not enough. So it requires a really large dollop of, as you put it before, sort of the humanities, but I really mean it in the sense of social science, what we know about how people uh, interact, work, influence each other, and can in fact screw things up. You're listening to BMC's Digital Outliers, a series dedicated to helping you understand the many ways digital technology is transforming the modern workplace. To listen to other podcasts in this series, go to digitaloutliers.com. We live in a time when the infrastructure of an organization has evolved to the point where in many ways, technology was used as a way of scaling how we work, uh, how we sell, how we serve. And over the years, I believe that that technology has created a distance between us and human beings, or at least the idea of how human beings think, how they feel, and how they play a role in all of this. Uh, and not only did technology scale this infrastructure, but things like human resources, uh, management, uh, processes, systems, all evolved over the years, creating equal distances between sort of the human being performing the work and the human beings managing that work. And I believe that technology in its own way is allowing us to see the human beings again on the other side of the screens. Uh, and what hasn't evolved is the recognition that there is a different way to view work. Uh, and all of the things that you've said up until this point are, I mean, absolutely true. Who has those discussions? You know, how, how do you, how do you get 
management to actually see what they don't see right now. Uh, and in many ways, I don't, you know, they're probably not even having this conversation. They're probably trying to solve for digital transformation in other ways. But where and how does this conversation get introduced? Well, I think that's often the starting point. Someone in an organization is, or a group of people in an organization are having a discussion about changes they need to make for some industrial purpose. And I don't, I don't mean it in the negative sense. You know, it's, it's business oriented. That is, you know, we as a business need to change our business practices in order to, you know, do better in this marketplace or in response to a competitive pressure or whatever. Um, and one of the common themes is, you know, how can we get more out of our, you know, diminishing resources, uh, you know, it's uh, competitive pressures. And that is generally the place, I believe, where the discussion can open up to how do we make our organization you know, more productive and what are the issues that are barriers that are, you know, problematic there. And that's when people start to talk about things like, you know, disaffected employees or how to tap into people's natural tendencies to want to do a good job and so on. And that's where the discussion can start to drift from, you know, the industrialization mindset into a more future of work or, you know, new ways of work uh, mindset. Change agents pop up. People feel they have a calling or they have an insight or they're or they're deputized to be in charge of wrestling with one or more of these issues. Um, and then they attempt to start initiating change in one place or another. So you see this in all kinds of places in different organizations. It's different people. Some people are, you know, the person who's in charge of, you know, quality and product lines, like my friend Celine Schillinger at Sanofi and uh, Sanofi Pasteur. And wound up as a change agent for a sweeping collection of changes in that company because of her original orientation, which was to get better yield in vaccine production. Or it could be somebody who's, you know, a community manager associated with the adoption of some new, uh, you know, social technology in the organization that people are hoping will lead to, you know, improved productivity, better communication, whatever. And that person becomes an agent of change because there are corporate barriers to the adoption of these technologies, what I call bends. You know, the bends are the things that counter trends in my in my dogma. So <laughs> those people start to, you know, they start by thinking about, hey, there's these positive trends. Let's use mobile. Let's use uh, social technologies. But then they start to encounter barriers that stop the adoption of these technologies or practices or the effective use of the new office space. One of those classic examples is they've got the great new office, but, you know, senior management sort of poo-poos people that are sitting and working together in the cafeteria because they're not really working. And if people start making <laughs> lots of snide comments when people are naturally, spontaneously interacting in one of those cafes that they created, then people will go back to their offices and not interact with each other. start making lots of snide comments when people are naturally spontaneously interacting in one of those cafes that they created then people will go back to their offices and not interact with each other so people will start to catch those those bends and say well we have to work around them we have to undo them we have to rethink them and that's where the change starts to come from. It's the it's the positive deviance, to use the psychological term. The people that are already exhibiting the behaviors that you wish other people would adopt 
are very commonly these change agents. It's people that identify issues and work in their own world, in their own work groups, in their own job to institute new, new approaches. And, uh, you know, in a lot of organizations, they, those people get, you know, they're the nails that stick up and they get hammered down or they leave or they quit or they get disaffected. One of the big tricks, if you will, is for companies to identify these people and herald them and support them and help them make changes that are in the the direction that the company uh, wants to go, even if they don't know that they want to go there. They want the, you know, increased yield in their vaccines, but they don't know that means that you have to have flex time or whatever. The real problem is to open up the discourse, to relax all the clenched muscles. You know, if if everyone's heart in the company is clenched like a fist, uh, then, you know, you're going to have real problems. And so you have to start with a sort of systematic, you know, relaxation of of the thinking about work in order to be able to institute anything at all. When we start to look at the human element in in business, uh, you almost have to step back and then come back to the middle to really see things, feel things, and 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 do things differently. Uh, a point you made earlier in terms of, you know, human motivations. I think human resources is just sort of largely structured around uh, what's best for the organization, and then where you sort of track uh, in in that progress or in that growth curve. Yet somewhere along the way, you know, values have changed, um, how people think and make decisions have changed and work just sort of has been this dated thing, uh, that hasn't really valued those changes on the human side. So who in the organization, um, do you see as being responsible or accountable, uh, for these types of conversations if, if they're not necessarily happening, uh, in, in, in isolation or at the executive level, where, where does this take place? Uh, it's, it's all over the place. It really depends on what the company's orientation is or where, you know, that, that person who's decided that it's time to make a change, uh, might be, might be sitting. I think in a lot of companies, it's going to be driven ultimately by something related to making a digital transformation where companies are saying, we need to make this transition from the industrial era company that, we were 10 years ago and we're sort of in this hybrid mess right now and we need to firmly set ourselves up along new lines that make sense for the time we're in and then there's a question then of sense making like how do you figure out what it is you're supposed to be and so on and various people get deputized or you know self-select to start wrangling with that and i think it's inevitable that someone or a bunch of them We'll start to say, well, we got to look at the people side of this. It's not just, you know, you know, putting sensors in our retail stores and putting an AI robot in our, you know, the front of our pizza parlors or whatever. There's still going to be, even in a world of automation and, uh, you know, super duper, you know, uh, Internet of Things technologies, people are still going to be, you know, the, the, the brain, human brains are still going to be in the loop. At, at various places. So I think that's what we have to see. And uh, as a result, I think this is a long-term thing. It's not something that's done in a nine-month sprint and then, boom, you're on the other side and everything's fine and you've you know, completely rewired the DNA of the business. I don't buy it. I think it, I think it takes a long time. I think it's a commitment to sort of generational thinking that you know, we're going to be doing this and hopefully it'll change our DNA in the next 
generation five years from now of the of the company will be you know operating on a profoundly different basis and from then we'll see what's coming down the pike next and what do we have to respond to then so i think a lot of this is in fact driven by technology so it's not surprising that it might come as an adjunct to or a a side effect of uh of some kind of major shift in technology so strangely enough you know, I think the biggest possible driver of this is going to be the shift to cloud computing in organizations where their companies are likely to dramatically rethink how they do their IT and basically, you know, outsource a tremendous amount of it to large cloud providers and and have a cadre of IT, an era of IT people sort of leave the company, retiring, or whatever, uh, being reorganizing, rethinking what they do for a job. Um, and that, because it's such a monumental shift and it changes, you know, the foundation of how people get their work done every day. I mean, we're in a time when you can't get your work done in most businesses unless it's implemented in, in software. It's why, in, in effect, this is all coming to the fore today is because of all of these technological changes and the needs of for companies to make this huge shift from what the way they did business before to something else. What's the role of the CIO in, in all of this? Does that, uh, does that change? Does it go away? At the turn of the last century, when companies were starting to put electricity into their operations, there was a VP of electricity. And that was when you know you had to be a real specialist with real special training that was very unlike the training for other people in the company. And that guy knew how electricity worked and, you know, how electric motors worked. And, uh, you know, they, they transitioned from whatever they were doing before and slowly electricity, electric lights, uh, you know, uh, relatively quickly, telephones, all the electrical gear started to get rolled out in the business. Electricity as a technology was so integrated into everything that uh, we stopped having VPs of electricity. And I think the the reality is we're in a period of time where the same thing is going to happen with the CIO. Computers, networks, mobile devices, they've been around long enough so that we're all used to it. It's not new stuff. And, and it's it's been dispersed and diversified into everything. So I think the CIO per se is going to go away. So I can't say that I, I view the, the CIO as likely to be the person who's going to be spearheading this big change. If anything, the traditional work of the CIO is now going to be subsumed into other agencies. And of course, we've seen that, uh, you know, in the company where, you know, marketing executives are taking more and more control of the, the, the spend that the IT guys used to have because they want to invest it in things that they feel, you know, suit their needs. That you know, diversification of IT dollars is is a an echo of this transformation. So I think that's going away and that's inevitable. Digital technology has become so foundational it can't be, you know, put in the hands of one person. And particularly, you know, if you look at the profile of uh, you know, the mindset of CIOs is they're amazingly, you know, risk averse. They're not really tied to business objectives. They have a different, they're sort of risk-averse people. And that's unlikely to be the right kind of personality you need to drive the business forward in, in a radically changing, you know, accelerated economy that we're in. So I think those days are numbered. 
with that, Stowe, I, I, I always enjoy talking to you. I love your perspective. I hope, uh, I hope everybody reads more of your work, and I certainly will, and I look forward to your book. So thank you so much for being on, on the show. Thanks, brother. Thanks for listening to BMC's Digital Outliers, a series dedicated to sharing the changes the modern workplace is undergoing via digital technology. BMC Software is a global leader that partners with companies committed to becoming digital powerhouses. Follow us on Twitter at BMC Software and at BMC underscore DSM.